Chapter 2 After embarkation leave and a short stay in Halifax, I was sent to join a troop ship in Liverpool Harbour. My troop ship was a luxury P&O liner, and I was given a comfortable cabin and told that dinner would be at seven. When the dinner bell sounded, my fellow officers and I went to the dining room and were shown to a table by a waiter. When we saw the menu, we thought it must be a joke. At that time, food rationing was very strict, and, in fact... One couldn't always get the ration expected, but here in Liverpool Harbour, the P&O offered me the full peacetime five-course dinner menu. It was not a joke. We ate the full P&O menu for two months on that ship. Being P&O, one of the luxury liners which used to carry passengers to India, one of the specialities was, of course, curry. They gave us a different curry every night and only started repeating themselves when we got to the Red Sea. We moved out of harbour on March the 11th, 1941, which was also my 21st birthday. I didn't know when or even whether I would see my wife June again, and although it was too early to know that she was pregnant, it was certainly a possibility. In a moment of nostalgia for everything I was leaving behind, I wrote a letter to my unborn son, whom I might never meet. It was to be opened on the occasion of his 21st birthday, I later posted the letter, but it has since vanished, which may be just as well, since the baby was, in fact, a girl. As we moved out of harbour, we formed up into one of the biggest convoys ever sent out. A long convoy of troop ships drawn up in two line-ahead columns, surrounded by destroyers and corvettes and minesweepers. The escort kept racing round the slow-moving troop ships like sheepdogs with a flock of sheep. We were, in fact, attacked several times by German U-boats, but we didn't lose a single ship. Many years later, I found myself having dinner with a German who told me he was a U-boat commander who tried to break through our escort. We compared dates, and it was certainly our convoy which he tried to attack off the west coast of Africa. We'd sailed within sight of the neutral Azores, and that's probably how the U-boats got our location. Our pleasure cruise took us on a zigzag course, right across the Atlantic, to within sight of Bermuda, then south and east to Freetown in West Africa, then on to Cape Town. I shall never forget the beautiful harbour with Table Mountain as a backcloth. When we anchored for the night, we dragged ourselves away from the dining room, duty-free drinks in hand, to see the harbour all lit up. It was the first time since the war started that we'd seen a town without any blackout. We had three days shore leave at Cape Town, when we went ashore, we found a convoy of cars waiting to take us to bars, restaurants and even to people's homes. The hospitality shown us was quite unforgettable and, of course, food rationing was unheard of in South Africa. One last memory of Cape Town. As we sailed out of harbour, a young lady stood at the end of the quay and sang to us. She had a lovely voice and presumably some amplifier because we could hear her voice until we were right out at sea. I've heard since then that she sang out every convoy and became quite famous. I don't know her name and I'm afraid I can't remember what she sang, but the memory's still with me. You might expect that when we eventually landed in Egypt, my life of luxury would come to an end, but in fact I was to spend several months in Cairo and then in Alexandria, living in comparative comfort. The food was excellent and I mean army food as well as the food in restaurants. All drink was cheap, and at that time there were no shortages of anything. 
The war was literally miles away in the desert. We sapper officers were not quite as spoilt as the officers at GHQ in Cairo, who wore smart tailor-made gabardine uniforms and would be found round the bar at Shepherd's Hotel or Groppy's Restaurant. We used to refer to them rather scathingly as either the gabardine swine or Groppy's light horse. I've never despised anyone for making himself as comfortable as possible under the circumstances, though I have occasionally been just a little jealous. It seems to me that any damn fool can make himself uncomfortable if he chooses to do so. Even in Normandy I managed to have two eggs for breakfast and my shirts washed and pressed and scented with lavender. The trick was to pick out the best scrounger in the unit and make him my batman, and threaten him with a real job of work if he ever let me down. All good things come to an end, and so one day I found myself in the desert. The desert's not what you expect. Blazing sun and endless sand dunes. In fact, the so-called western desert is mostly hard rock with a thin coating of dust, and although it can be very hot in summer, the winter nights were often bitterly cold. Not quite freezing, but with a cold wind that seemed to blow right through you. The dust was as fine as face powder and penetrated everywhere, but the real plague of the desert was the flies. Not mosquitoes, but ordinary, or extraordinary, flies. The quantity and persistence of the flies was almost unbelievable. The flies were desperately short of water, so they made for your lips and your eyes. Fortunately, flies can't see in the dark, so we got some peace at night. Because of their dirty feeding habits, the flies infected any food they could touch and any cut on your skin. Even a spot could become a running ulcer. Desert sores, we called them, and we nearly all got them sooner or later. Apart from the flies and the dust and the cold night wind in the winter, the food and drink situation was not quite up to P&O standards. Bully beef's quite good when served from the fridge with a little fresh salad on a summer's day in England, but served warmish so that you pour it out of the tin. And accompanied by a dry army biscuit, it gets a bit depressing when it's your staple diet for several months on end. Water was always scarce, sometimes more than at other times. In good times, we sometimes had a gallon a day, but quite often it was down to half a gallon. That was for all purposes, including washing. In the heat of summer, one needed to drink four pints a day. That's half a gallon, so washing didn't get a high priority. The army still insisted we should shave every day, so we used the last dregs of our morning mug of tea for this purpose. I developed the two-shirt system. You wore one shirt until you couldn't stand the smell of it, and then you changed to the second shirt and wore it until it was even worse. By this time, the first shirt seemed comparatively acceptable, so you changed again. You could keep this up for several months, and sometimes you did. Now that we're on the subject of food and drink, surprise, surprise, let me explain the very simple and effective way the Eighth Army made its essential mug of tea. In the days before the British Army made a rather inferior copy of the German petrol can called the jerry can, our petrol came in two-gallon square tin containers. With a tin opener, one cut the empty petrol can in half, one half was then partly filled with sand, and a measure of petrol was poured onto the sand and set alight. The other half can was then filled with water and placed on top of the first half can, and a suitable amount of tea was thrown into the cold water. No nonsense of boiling the water first, the tea was stewed to form a really strong brew which the British soldier preferred. 
Connoisseurs would float a dead match on top of the water. This was believed to take away the taste of petrol, which was always a feature of the desert tea. Occasionally, we came across a wandering Arab. Sanusi Bedouins always dressed in black, and the more dashing ones would be riding a German BMW motorbike, left behind by the German army. A bargaining session would then begin to exchange tea for eggs. Both sides were experts at this, and would start off by offering brewed tea leaves dried in the sun in exchange for addled eggs. These preliminaries concluded with no hard feelings on either side, real tea would be exchanged for moderately fresh eggs. Unlike the Egyptian Arabs who are great coffee drinkers, the Sanusi of Libya prefer tea, which they sometimes drink with mint. As we never had any fresh meat in the desert, I managed to shoot a few gazelles. The liver was particularly delicious and the haunch was also very good. We roasted this in a metal ammunition box, which made an excellent oven. I always used a discarded Italian rifle and ammunition for hunting, as we were not supposed to use our own. One of my first jobs in the desert was when I was working for a survey company. As much of the desert is completely flat and featureless, there's nothing much to put on a map. I once heard an argument between two sappers as to whether there was more fuck-all on one side than there was bugger-all on the other side. I can't put it better than that. To overcome this problem, I had the job of constructing beacons, consisting of two empty 40-gallon oil drums, one on top of the other. We'd mount these on a small pile of stones and mix a bucket full of concrete to put on the bottom, with a number scratched into it. These beacons would be in sight of one another, so that anyone reading the number would know where he was on the map. We covered hundreds of square miles of desert with these beacons, often far behind what could be described as the front line. We'd drive off into the blue with two Bedford 15 trucks and a three-ton truck for the oil drums, water and petrol. We never ran into any German or Italian patrols. In this, we were luckier than one man we picked up, at least a hundred miles from anywhere. He'd been driving an ambulance when he was attacked by a German fighter plane. He was the only survivor, and was walking alone without any water and with two bullet wounds in his shoulder. As we were on our way to Bir Hakeim, we took him there and left him with a French doctor from the Foreign Legion. The man's name was Corporal Gill, and I often wonder what happened to him. During these trips into the remoter areas of the Libyan desert, we saw a lot of gazelle, and on one occasion, I saw through my binoculars what looked rather like a donkey with very long horns. I think it must have been an oryx, but those animals are not supposed to be anywhere near that region, so I have no explanation. Another surprise was to see a very large grey shaggy dog, or wolf, perhaps. It looked like an Irish wolfhound. Again, I have no explanation. We saw plenty of desert rats hopping along like tiny kangaroos, and at one time, near Tobruk, we made a pet of one. At the time, I was sharing a dugout with two other officers when the rat appeared. I went to chase it out, but you can't chase something that doesn't move away. The rat simply sat there washing its face. This is something that psychiatrists call disassociated behaviour. In other words, when faced with a situation that one doesn't understand, one does something unrelated to the actual situation. After this introduction, the desert rat became a very special pet. We offered him army biscuits, which he very wisely refused, so we tried him with chocolate. This he went for in a big way. Someone, probably me, very naughtily tried him on gin. 
We poured a little gin into the lid of a tobacco tin and the desert rat, his name was Bert, by the way, because he was as fat as our quartermaster of that name, put his nose into the gin and jumped back about two feet and sat up washing his face. After a short time he came back to try again. This time he didn't jump back quite so far and, after due consideration, Bert decided that he rather liked gin and came back and really lapped it up. Wait for wait, it would be like a man drinking a whole bottle. This had a curious effect on Bert. He performed a kind of wall of death act, running round the completely vertical walls of the dugout three or four times, an amazing acrobatic feat, defying all the laws of gravity and common sense. We became very fond of Bert, but when we had to move on, he absolutely refused to be put in a box so that we could take him with us. I'm ashamed to say that we left an alcoholic gerbil wandering around the desert looking for gin and chocolate. Having joined the Royal Engineers Survey in order to go skiing in Finland, the survey department and I found that we were not really suited to each other, and I was posted to a real engineer unit. The job of an engineer in the army is to build bridges, blow up bridges, defuse unexploded bombs, and to lay and clear minefields, and during the next few years I did some of all of these things. But in the desert it was mines, mines, and more mines. I became something of an expert on the subject. There's talk nowadays of getting an international agreement against the use of mines, and I'm completely in agreement with this idea. All over the world, mostly in the third world, mines are laid by the million in unmarked areas where they inflict horrible injuries on innocent civilian populations, particularly children. In the western desert, minefields were laid between clearly marked wire fences. Neither the 8th Army nor the Africa Corps ever laid mines loosely scattered in areas where civilians could walk into them. We laid anti-tank mines as a protective barrier against surprise tank attacks, and we laid anti-personnel mines among them to slow down the enemy sappers, who would try to clear the mines, and as a defence against surprise infantry attack. We always made detailed maps of where each mine was laid, so that they could be removed easily and safely. All this sounds reasonably ethical on the face of it. Unfortunately, very few of the mines were removed at the end of the war, and as the Bedouins first stole the wire for their own use, some minefields became unmarked, and wandering camels, goats and Bedouins were injured or killed as a result. The Egyptian government was supposed to be given maps of all the minefields laid on Egyptian soil, but I don't believe very much was done to make the area safe. A few years ago, the Egyptian government asked the British, Italian and German governments to send out experts to help them clear the minefields. I wrote to the chief engineer, telling him that I probably knew more about the mines laid by the British than any other engineer officer in the army. I offered to go without pay, but the offer was very politely refused. I didn't make this offer out of any very altruistic motive. I just thought it would be interesting to meet the German and Italian officers who'd laid the minefields at El Alamein. You may have noticed that so far in these notes I've not mentioned anything that could be described as fighting. And that's because, from the day I signed on as a gunner, nearly three years were to pass before I heard a shot fired in anger. Except, of course, for air raids, which everyone in England had experienced many times. Unlike the 1914-18 war, we didn't live in trenches within spitting distance of the enemy. In fact, until the El Alamein confrontation, there was no very clear front line at all. The first time I ever actually saw the enemy in the flesh, so to speak, was in August 1942, during the Battle of Alam Halfa. 
My troop had been laying minefields which were part of the trap into which Monty had lured the Africa Corps. Monty deliberately left open what appeared to be a breakthrough to Cairo and the Suez Canal, which was the prize Rommel hoped to win. My job was to close the last gap in the minefield before the enemy arrived and then draw back to our next prepared position. It was a bit spooky, knowing that all the British troops had withdrawn and that we were the last to leave. We'd just completed relaying mines to close the gap when the whole night sky lit up with very lights, so that it was almost as bright as day. Then we saw them. Two or three thousand German soldiers, marching in a long line, stretched out in both directions, and only just a few hundred yards away. There were German soldiers as far as the eye could see. There was something almost unreal about it, rather like watching an Aldershot tattoo or some elaborate historical pageant. I can remember having no sense of danger. We just quietly withdrew, without, of course, firing a shot. <laughs>